That's a good question. I'm Bodie B. Welcome to Death Tracks. It's Tuesday, February the 18th, 2020. 
And since this show rebroadcasts, if it's February the 18th, 2020, where you are today, then you are live and uh, joining along. And thanks so much for joining in with us. I will do my best to bring something useful to the uh, shared communal airwaves of the world right now, wherever you are. Thanks for tuning in. And as you know, you can call us at any time, something on your heart. Uh, you have a question, you have uh, something you want to uh, share. It's a great, uh, very safe, safe place to share. We don't see you. You're anonymous. And so if there's something on your heart, and, um, 808-873-3435. I'm your host, Bodie B., once again. And I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be anywhere at this point. And um, we were made for these times, seems to be the a response I come up with when I scratch my head and, and cry about what's happening out there. And, and as I've mentioned a number of times, I hear my grandchildren's grandchildren calling me, Hey, Grandpa. Hey, Grandpa. Grandpa, in the midst of that uh, tremendous suffering and injustice and horror that was acting out in, uh, in the political world and the economic world and certainly uh, what's happening in the environment and the shifting weather and the great changes that are afoot pretty much everywhere. Grandpa, what were you doing? And uh, most often when I ask the question that I'm being asked by my grandchildren's grandchildren, I get kind of like chicken skin, goosebumps, and uh, I take it in in a very, very deep way. And so then my life, um, hopefully, and I'll tell you, I'm working at it, it becomes my answer to the question of what were you doing, Grandpa? So one of the things I'm doing is I'm here on the radio uh, trying to bring something a real, a truthful, uh, to help remind us all, including me, uh, how much is at stake, you know, what's happening in the world, and, and two, uh, just how fragile it all is, and two, how precious we all are, and the, how precious and how most important the people that we love and care about, and the things and places we love and care about, and because... Um, uh, I think it was Joni Mitchell said, "You don't know what you got till it's gone." And uh, many of what uh, many of us are, are witnessing a lot that is uh, going and may not ever ever come back. So I better play something to segue into the show as we kind of move along. But again, I often break if uh, you've got a phone call. Got a great guest today.
Glad to be on Community Radio, KAKU 88.5 FM, Maui's community-supported, listener-sponsored radio. This is public radio, folks, and at a time when radio uh, and television and most media now are being owned by mega corporations uh, with their own agendas and their own things they want to sell you and want you to think, public radio becomes even more critically important that we can say anything we want on this show, uh, keep it clean. Uh, I'm actually honored and, and so grateful and respectful. I'm on the same radio station as Democracy Now! Public radio is critical. And you know, radio is going to make a comeback, in my opinion and my prediction, because our minds are being absolutely corporatized and taken over by somebody else's images and somebody else's stories. And our imagination itself is atrophying. And uh, what's really sad is that that's what I see in, in kids, that their minds are basically being uh, taken over by uh, images. And uh, we are such visual people, and are, um, we are so affected by images. And if uh, you read the book, uh, for example, if you read Lord of the Rings before you saw the movie, uh, your imagination was just so alive with what uh, Hobbitville looked like and, you know, Baggins End looked like and what Bilbo and Gandalf and uh, Aragorn and all uh, Gwyn, uh, Gwyn, not Guinevere, wrong, wrong one, but all those people, um, Galadriel 
your imagination just went wild in picturing who those people were and i'm guessing you got super excited when the movie came out and i sure did uh, but honestly probably the, your story is that ever since you saw the movie all those characters look exactly like the movie characters because those images are so strong uh, stronger than our, our mind can we can't hold on to the images we had before we saw the movie and um that's a very powerful thing in itself in terms of how our minds work. So uh, again, public radio, so important, so important. I'm Bodie B. This is Death Tracks. Uh, this is Alan Watts. Now, there really isn't anything radically wrong with being sick or with dying. Who said you're supposed to survive? Who gave you the idea that it's a gas to go on and on and on? And we can't say that it's a good thing for everything to go on living from the very simple demonstration that if we enable everybody to go on living, we overcrowd ourselves. So therefore, uh, one person who dies, in a way, is honorable because he's making room for others. We can also look further into it and see that if our death could be indefinitely postponed, we would not actually go on postponing it indefinitely. Because after a certain point, we would realize that that isn't the way in which we wanted to survive. Why else would we have children? Because children arrange for us to survive in another way. By, as it were, passing on a torch so that you don't have to carry it all the time. There comes a point where you can give it up and say, now you work. It's a far more amusing arrangement for nature to continue the process of life through different individuals than it is always with the same individual. Because as each new individual approaches life, life is renewed. And one remembers how fascinating the most ordinary everyday things are to a child. Because they see them all as marvelous, because they see them all in a way that is not related to survival and profit. When we get to thinking of everything in terms of survival and profit value, as we do, then the shapes of scratches on the floor cease to have magic. And most things, in fact, cease to have magic. So therefore, in the course of nature, once we have ceased to see magic in the world anymore, we are no longer fulfilling nature's game of being aware of itself. There's no point in it anymore. And so we die. And so something else comes to birth, which gets an entirely new view. It is not therefore natural for us 
do wish to prolong life indefinitely. But we live in a culture where it has been rubbed into us in every conceivable way that to die is a terrible thing. And that is a tremendous disease from which our culture in particular suffers. I think that's one of my roles out here is that when people say they want to accept their death and I think I th- what I see what I see now is that I, I want to fall in love with the fact that I'm going to die and I, and I, and recognizing the beauty of death as part of this story imagine that falling in love with the truth that you're going to die which is is the truth you're going to die and um and I also talk about there is no death but I'm right now I'm not talking about the there is no death because there is certainly death and we're going to die and when we uh, if we study nature at all and I'm a big student of nature I see just how essential and beautiful the story is because death is so central to the story that it doesn't happen without death, that life and death are a dancing in the forest together and they, they couldn't do either dance without each other. And we are nature. We are nature. And we are not separate from nature as the current uh, version of the story is trying to act out, but the current story, as most of us see, is a very broken story. And maybe that's why, in part, it's broken because we think we are somehow separate and, uh, and above and beyond the laws of nature. And maybe death itself is the ultimate insult to our belief that we're somehow above and beyond nature. Wow, that's cool. I'll read a poem. Uh, we uh, Actually, my guest today is a bit of a poet, so I'll read a poem. This is from Rumi, because it's... I, I only saw this poem the other day, but um, there's a part of this poem, and I'll tell you about it after I read it, that has just struck a really deep chord in me. This is from Rumi. Be a lamp or a ladder or a lifeboat. Help someone's soul heal. Walk out of your house like a shepherd. I'll I'll read it again. Be a lamp or a lifeboat or a ladder. Help someone's soul heal. Walk out of your house like a shepherd. Now, the first line, be a lamp or a ladder or a lifeboat, really, really has impressed, made a deep impression on me. Uh, Be a lamp or a lifeboat or a ladder. I'd be happy to be one of those things. Uh, I'd like to be all three. Um, I'd be really delighted if I could be one of those things for uh, the the greater whole, the greater community. Imagine that. Be a lamp or a lifeboat or a ladder. Well... Well, all I can do after that is um, I'll play something cool that kind of goes with that. Where are we now? Here we are. And I'll see if I can get to talk to you. Shall be known by the company we keep By the ones who circle round to tend these fires We shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive from deep within the earth. It is time now, it is time now that we've thrived. It is time 
turning we shall learn to lead in love in this great turning we shall learn to lead in love we shall be known by the company we keep by the ones who circle round to tend these fires we shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive from deep within the earth it is time now it is time now that we thrive it is Great turning we shall learn to lead in love. We shall be known by the company we keep, by the ones who circle round to tend these fires. We shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive deep within the earth. It is time now, it is time now that we thrive. It is time we lead ourselves into the well. It is time now, and what a time to be alive. In this great turning we shall learn to lead in shall be known by the company we keep by the ones who circle round and tend these fires we shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive from deep within the earth I love that great huh okay cool let's get down to business here I mean I take that back what else have we been doing <clears throat> this is serious business folks okay so you all know I've been uh going to Baldwin High School and uh, supporting and facilitating a um, a grief group. And, wow, that's serious. My computer just went dark. <laughs> Never a good sign when it's on. Um, but I'll go on, and I've been facilitating this grief group for a couple of years now in, the, in one of the local high schools and these kids are so courageous because they volunteer on their own to go to a grief group because somebody they know uh, it's usually a relative or a friend um, who's died recently and sometimes recently is two years ago or, which is recent uh, in fact there is no uh, determination as to when recent is because um, 
recent's a very relative thing. A very relative thing. You could say the Industrial Revolution started recently. I mean, that's that's how relative it all is. Um, but some some of these kids come, and I wish there was some some something. When I was in high school, and my dad suddenly died, um, and there wasn't anything. And I thought everybody in the school knew my father died, and it wasn't until 30 years later that I realized that nobody knew. Nobody knew. Um, so then I um, recently been teaching at the University of Hawaii uh, here on Maui a class called The Space Between Hope and Hopeless. And because many people are experiencing that wave, that swing between hoping um, the story that's playing out in the world, uh, which is a story that brings up a lot of hopelessness, um, a lot of sense of powerlessness, or what's the point, or the problems are too big, or uh, which, which in itself brings up our strategies for distracting us from the despair and sadness and ang maybe anger and, uh, it, and all the other feelings that maybe are too painful, we don't want to feel them. So we distract ourselves in numerous ways to avoid feeling what many of us are feeling. And two, many of us are grieving as, uh, in order to let those feelings move and have their way with us. And um, that's what's happening. So the space, uh, this class, which has been We've had two Thursday nights, and there'll be a third Thursday night coming up this week, and uh, it's been very powerful for um, people who are attending this class to be willing to look at um, look at their feelings and go into them. In fact, we did a grief ritual last week um, to really honor uh, and voice some of the things many of us are grieving, and of course, uh, many of us are grieving the same things. Uh, not not only maybe having had someone close to us die, um, and, and oftentimes I meet people who are, uh, when they're really um, in touch with their grieving, they're grieving somebody who died 30 years ago. I mean, I, I've run into a woman that was grieving an abortion from 40 years ago. So again, a relative is a relative, I mean, uh, recently is a relative term, and um, sometimes... So maybe I, I like. I think Stephen Levine said maybe the biggest spiritual w work we do is how to live with a broken heart, and many of us by now have had our hearts broken m at least once, at least once. And 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 how do we respond to that so that we don't close ourselves down to keeping our hearts open where the love can flow in and out? You know how do we how do we do that and risk being hurt again? Or what do we do to armor ourselves so we'll never, ever be hurt that deeply again? And how and how that, how that you can imagine, turns out bitter old people, and we see them, we see them all over the place, the people who chose to armor themselves um, to such a degree that they couldn't let the love in, and they couldn't let the love out, and of course. Uh, uh, lately I started thinking about the three hearts and um, the three hearts being the physical heart pumping away inside your chest that you know, um, pumps your blood and <clears throat> keeps you alive and then there's the emotional heart where we feel 
we feel emotions in the heart. And then there's the spiritual heart, which is uh, uh, the place we, we, um, we use as kind of a placeholder for, for the soul or that which is um, wider and deeper than uh, everything else. And, and uh, ironically, which I think is fascinating, that the leading cause of death in this country is a congested heart failure. And you think, well, that's not just about eating too many fried foods, that the three hearts are very connected. And so uh, if you are emotionally, let's say, congested, or uh, in many cases spiritually congested, that would contribute to congestive heart failure, if you could imagine that. And I can. So um, where are we now? I'll play something else. Still, still fiddling with my, trying to get my computer to work. Um, let's see. Um, that's a pretty good one. Death is really an ever-present reality for us. It's always announcing itself in the background, on the news in the stories we hear about the lives of others, in our concerns about our own health. Death makes a mockery of almost everything else we spend our lives doing. Because the truth is, none of us know how much time we have in this life. And taking that fact to heart brings a kind of moral and emotional clarity and energy to the present. And it can bring a resolve to not suffer over stupid things. You've got this moment of life, this beautiful moment, this moment where your consciousness is bright. It's not dimmed by morphine in the hospital on your last day among the living. This is your life, the only one you've got, and you will never get this moment back again. And you don't know how many more moments you have You've had a thousand chances to tell the people closest to you that you love them in a way that they feel it and in a way that you feel it. And you've missed most of them. No matter how many times you do something, there will come a day when you do it for the last time. You've got this one opportunity to fall in love with existence. So why not relax and enjoy your life? You are in a game right now, and you can't see the clock. And yet you're free to make the game as interesting as possible. You can even change the rules. You can discover new games that no one has thought of yet. You can literally build a rocket to go to Mars so that you can start a colony there. But whatever you do, however seemingly ordinary, you can feel the preciousness of life. And an awareness of death is the doorway into that way of being in the world. Okay, I'm back. I'm Bodhi B. This is Death Tracks. Still uh, fondling around with my computer, but uh, anyways, I'll tell you about this class uh, that now we're going to take a trip to Kauai. And my wife, Leila, and I will lead a weekend retreat 
called the, the radiant heart, and that's deepening uh, into our spiritual selves, really. Uh, self, self-inquiry, exercises, uh, practices, chanting and singing, movement, silence. Uh, it's, uh, we're, Leila and I teach in a Sufi lineage, but everybody's absolutely welcome, and this would work for anybody who was drawn to it. And the following weekend, March 27th and 28th, on Kauai at a church in Kapa'a, I'll be uh, facilitating Friday night a group called The Space Between Hope and Hopeless. And um, on Saturday, I'm going to do a five-hour-a-day event called uh, Grief, Love, no, sorry, Grief, Gratitude, Love, and Death, which I think are like the um, four main food groups kind of thing, Grief, Gratitude, love, and death. And there's uh, there's more, right? There's forgiveness. And that's a big one. Uh, there's asking, not being afraid to ask for what you really want. Um, but since my computer's acting silly, um, I might as well just invite my guest onto the radio show, who's sitting right here. And... Uh, w- he comes to Maui, him and his wife Gail come to Maui, maybe what, uh, last how many years? 12. Hold on now, you're not on yet, but you will be. Uh, 12 years in there from the cold East Coast. And so these are some of the smarter people that figure out, let's go to Maui. Um, and uh, Ruben Liebhaber. Yeah, welcome to the show, Ruben. Thank you, buddy. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure, I guess we connected through the world of hospice. And I think uh, somehow you found me, or you came into the store, and... um, I think it was before the store. I came into the Temple of Peace one night when you were leading a bereavement group, I believe, with Ramdas. And that would be in around 2008, I think. Okay, so now we're going on, that's more than 10 years. That maybe is the 12 years you've been coming. And uh, in that time, um, in that time, I still haven't walked in the crater with you. (laughs) <laughs> I think every the invita- year the invitation's open. I think every year you ask me, and um, I f- usually find some reason why I can't, don't have the time, kind of thing. Even though I go into the crater at least once a year, especially in September around my birthday, because it's such a powerful, uh, powerful place and uh, and and a very important place in my life. Yeah. And uh, often when I'm in the crater, I think, well, that's what we're all doing on Maui. We're taking care of this mountain. That's what we're doing. Yeah. I've done three solo treks through uh, three days, staying at the two of the campsites and just having a very, very deep and full experience. Cool. So uh, you're a bit of a poet, but tell us about your uh, your career life and, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, professionally, I'm an architect, retired at that. Uh, most of my career as an architect was spent as a project development manager helping nonprofits to develop assisted living and hospice residences. After having done worked on assisted living for many years, I decided to uh, make a void in my life and just kind of separate from my work for a little bit and see what filled in and 
lo and behold, a few months later, I got an invitation to write a proposal to help an organization develop a hospice residence. I had no notion of what that was, um, had barely heard of hospice. I called one of my brothers who was a hospital administrator and said to him, Lou, what's hospice? So he explained it to me, and I immediately took to it because it is a holistic way of looking at life. Um, it's a support service for people who are uh, nearing the end of life. Why don't you t turn this a little bit to the side so when you go, it, you're not popping that. No, the other way. More. Keep going. Keep going. So that, so that the mic is kind of on the side of your mouth, not quite f straight into it as best you can. Is that okay? Yeah, that's better. Okay. So you're not talking straight into the mic. Got it. Got it. Okay, thank you. So I, um, I, I took to hospice. It, would, it was very aligned with my, my view of the world. And um, I thought the best way to understand the hospice world was to become a volunteer. So in 2000, I be, which was a year after my father's passing, I became a hospice volunteer, um, VNA Care Network in the Boston area. And for about 15 years, I served at the Tippett Home, which is a 10-bed hospice residence. And my wife and I moved back to Cambridge, where we started 40 years ago. And now I volunteer at the Durham House, which is a, a sister hospice house. And in around 2010, my son Jordan was in high school and needed to do a community service project. And he said to me, Dad, I'd like to learn to be a hospice volunteer, which completely blew me away in some ways. In other ways, it felt natural. Uh, Jordan was trained by Nancy Barcelo, who was the same woman who trained me in. Nancy's a very dear friend to this day. And um, he started to volunteer with me. He came into the house on weekends and... In the beginning, he's very shy and kind of shadowed me. And then slowly he got his own, had his own way. He's a very, very soulful person. It was a natural thing for him to be able to do. Uh, I have some very fond memories of him kind of winning over one of the long-term residents who, long-term meaning for several months, who was um, a little uh, not wanting to have volunteers much. And Jordan had his way of kind of working into the room in a non-assuming way, and they became friends, close. And Jordan seemed very much to be able to handle the fact that people were in their, their last days and, um, and was able to be non-attached in a personal way. One time, there wasn't much to do, and he was in the living room, and so he figured he would water the plants and uh, so we got a watering can and started to water the plants. And one of the plants he was watering was actually not a real plant. So that was kind of, <laughs> kind of a funny thing. But it became a wonderful way for father and son to bond. And uh, it was just one of the many ways in which our souls connected. And then? And then... Um, now we get into a little, maybe we'll see what happens for Reuven because this is you know, a very powerful time in his life. That's right. Still is. That's right. That's right. So um, along the way there, um, 
in 2013, um, Jordan had graduated uh, University of Miami. He wanted to go into uh, sports uh, announcing and so on. And um, he got a job at Hertz Rent-A-Car, of all places, uh, to hone some of his early management skills. And it was kind of interesting. He did it nearby where we lived. And uh, he had a little bit of a quandary. Um, the way in which you get recognition there is by um, selling insurance. Uh, and Jordan had to reconcile for himself, how can I do this in a way that um, is meaningful? And so given the area where his um, the franchise was that he was working at, uh, many of the people who came in there did not have their own insurance. So for him, it became a way for him to help them to protect themselves. Um, after uh, working there for, I think, about two years, he then uh, decided to go back to, um, to get a graduate degree in business and uh, was working at an assisted living um, facility in Boston. He also was a co-founder uh, of uh, an, an early uh, an early founder of uh, Boston Bridge, a networking group for young professionals who are interested in the healthcare field, and particularly working with aging. And uh, with my wife Gail's uh, help, he uh, started a uh, mentoring group, and his first um, uh, his first mentor was. Um, uh, Barry Berman, uh, who uh, was as a leader in the in the field of uh, of uh, assisted living and aging facilities, and uh, Barry saw right away that uh, Jordan was very special, and actually made a position for him that didn't hadn't already existed. He became assistant administrator at 25 years old of an assisted living facility. Um, after Jordan was working there for the first week, he came home for dinner on Friday night, which he often did, and he called up and said, well, I'm going to be late tonight, and I'll tell you why when I get home. So when he gets home, he says, well, I didn't realize that part of my job description was to be the rabbi for the facility. Uh, Jordan had had a Jewish upbringing, uh, was not particularly religious, but he knew the prayers, and the residents just completely adored him. So he um, he fulfilled that function, which he didn't know ahead of time. But uh, as with him, he settled right into it and, and took it took it on wholly and fully. Okay, and we're leading up to um, the death of your son. Yeah, um, one Friday night, uh, Gail and I were um, had just finished dinner, and we actually. Um, we're standing in the kitchen and having a glass of wine, which we don't often do. Um, and we got a, uh, a call, and I picked up my phone, and um, I saw that Jordan's name read out. So I was very you know, happy to see that, and I answered it, and I said, Hi, Jordan. And on the other end was not Jordan, but it was a police officer who said that uh, there had been a... Um, uh, an incident, and uh, Jordan was um, uh, in in the hospital, and that we should come right away. Um, we got right in the car, and within half an hour or 20, 20 minutes, we were in Boston at 
um, Tufts New England Medical Center in her emergency room. And uh, Jordan was one of the one of the rooms, and um, he had um, they were trying to resuscitate him. Um, he had had a uh, aortal dissection, which is a, a ruptured artery to the heart, which was completely, completely out of the blue. There was no indication. Uh, Jordan was leading a vibrant, full life, and um, he had no clue. We had no clue that this was in the offing. So from having just that evening uh, finished up his work week by helping uh, lead the, the Sabbath prayers, he went to uh, his nearby gym just to change and get ready for a date. And um, right in the locker room there, um, he just collapsed and was never revived. What year was then? That was in 2013. Yeah. So there's nothing like getting a call from the police about the death of, of your son. Well, uh, we didn't know that he had died. Um, and I guess it's it, it certainly started to, to sink in that that was a... Actually, when we were driving over there, I don't know that we went to that place. Uh, we went to that place once uh, we were in the... Um, emergency room with him and um, he it was clear that he wasn't going to be able to be revived so it was uh, a complete shock Um, we called some of our uh, dear close friends in Uh, we called um, Jordan's brother Aaron and his um, fiance Rachel from New York and they hopped on a plane they were they met us in a in the emergency room um, maybe an hour, two hours later. Um, we were the next day to have driven with Jordan to New York to celebrate Passover with family. So we would all have been together then. And in in retrospect, I would say that Jordan left as best he could. Um, there was no way that on a conscious level that he knew what was happening or was going to happen, but perhaps his soul did and was able to make the incredibly um, unbearable to be um, to be bearable in a way that Gail and I and, and those who knew and loved Jordan and there were many people who did uh, could, uh, could continue on. Um, Again, looking back, um, just having that glass of wine, which we didn't normally do, uh, was that to, um, you know, alleviate some of the shock and pain. Um, the fact that we would have all been together on Passover, um, instead of meeting down there, the whole family came up to be with us to bury Jordan. Two days later. Take your time. Yeah. The um, it was also uh, Easter weekend, and there was a lot of um, logistics around uh, burying Jordan uh, in a timely manner because of the days of Passover. It was, and it was also 
um, Easter Sunday. So two day two days later, you you said you buried him. He wasn't forty eight hours until he was. And then you had Passover with your family. And then we had Passover with our family without. Joy. Well, actually, no. I don't even remember what happened around Passover. Um, you know, we're just a uh, family. Family came up and were with us. Um, the sanctuary um, of a temple we didn't belong to a, 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 a temple which had a building and the local temple opened its doors and it was a very large temple and um, the number of people who came they had to keep opening up more and more of the space um, and it was a overflowing number who just within a very short notice um, came to uh, to be with us, and all we could really say is, here we are. You know, here we are in the midst of this loss that is so sudden and so unexpected uh, of a young man who just had so much, um, not just promise for the future, because he was living his life in a very conscious way and uh, serving in a very beautiful way, and. This all um, was, uh, it actually, the next day um, uh, was um, April 1st, and some of his friends didn't, you know, initially thought that it wasn't true. Was it an April Fool's thing? Um, So, yeah, I mean, there was, and and there was an interesting twist to the... Yeah, um, I just there was uh, the the suddenness uh, was was pretty pretty overwhelming. So um, so you you and your wife I'm I'm guessing have a pretty um, you've been at some kind of spiritual practice for a long time. Yes, uh, we we both have our have our practices. Uh, mine pretty much is uh, to get up uh, before the crack of dawn and. Um, brush my teeth, wash my face, and get out into nature. Uh, in Lexington, Mass., uh, nature can be kind of bitter cold in the wintertime, but I just had this, this draw to go, to go outside uh, and then to read and write some. Um, and so the first hour and a half or maybe even two hours of almost every day of my life for the past... 15 years anyway um, have been spent in that way uh, and just kind of opening up to the beauty of nature uh, our house backed up to a bike path which went to a meadow not far from where we were and um, I hadn't really been writing much poetry but after Jordan um, passed somehow this channel opened up inside of me uh, and I wrote a series of poems which I called um Dawning Meadow, Morning Sun, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, Morning Sun. And these poems really channeled through me. I, I tweaked them a little bit here and there, but um, the essence of them just came right through onto the, onto the paper. In fact, I made a practice of not making a practice of writing poetry because I wanted it to have that special um, purity and otherness to it, if you will. There's uh, one poem which I would like to to read, just to kind yeah, of go ahead. open up the the poetry part. I love to play with words. Um, 
And I, I, I do so not to be clever. I do so to uh, invite the people who are experiencing the poetry to open up uh, for themselves. Um, this poem is called Being, and it's spelled B-E-E-I-N-G. My telling you what I see is no substitute for you yourself to behold. To wholly experience the wanderings of the bee in the field while sitting or standing or walking or lying. Notice in the activity the movement abounding, in the stillness the movement abiding. Hmm, all is a buzz, even here, yes, right here, even now, yes, right now. What do you see? How do you be? How do you spell the last B? B E E. So it could be read on, on either level. Um, and the reason I chose this poem to, to, to start with is that certainly around grief, um, we we can tell each other, but we really need to see for ourselves. We need to open to the experience um, and just really discover um, what it means to us. Um, Gail and I belonged to um, a community called Benayor of Boston, and one of the things that the community does really, really well is to support each other um, in difficult times. And part of that support is doing so from um, from a distance and non-invasively and bringing meals and, and showing up um, uh, when asked for, um, but mostly and most beautifully giving space. And for a couple of months, really, we needed a great amount of space just for ourselves. I'll bet. I'll yeah. bet. I'm going to I'm going to take a little break here cuz we're at the top of the hour let some of the underwriters and sponsors identify themselves. I'm Bodie B. This is Death Tracks and we're listening to uh, Reuven Liebhaber and um I I love it when somebody'll come on the show and and just cut right to the heart and 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 speak truth even if it's a little difficult to speak it. So here's some here's some uh probably loud underwriters. Uh, to have some moments with you. Stay with us. I'm Bodie B. Uh, this is Death Tracks. 